preaching today just kidding just kidding <laughs> just, just kidding y'all don't y'all don't y'all don't want that y'all want Vania. um but i am going to be reading uh the word of god today um i'm going to read it first in english and then i'm going to read it in amdo tibetan some of you are like what does that mean it's it's a language um so the scripture today is from hebrews i'm going to be reading from hebrews 1 uh, one through five. And again, I'll give you English first so you half know what's going on. Um, all right. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. Yahadaba li dombo, domboni shngawa. Indibi disa, komchoki, long tomba snamjedni, tangmambotang, tap, snatokja, ngato mipo namla, ksongjang. Damta mi dinder, konga shijedni, ngatsor stongte. Shina yoto joka jenzembar fkusyang. Kong jedni shkomchoki and jiksten kamdang der yodba tam jet fkopahnang. Shina fkomchoka gzodjetja odli hunbar fsasyang. Komchoka ngowo yong dakbarmtsun. Konga numtadang rdambi fkai yoto jok syong barmzat. Dugni Dakbar Mzatap Nangnishang Kamsa Gzajatang Rdambi Komchoka Shak Yisa Zyak Komchoki Shila Hanangwim Tana Komchoka Ponya Namja Tanli Chewa Yinbadar Devshen Shite Komchoka Ponya Namli Pagyongin Komchoki Chedna Nga yawa nidyimbina, derang ngana chedja parajer, yang ngana chedja paranjerjang, chedna nga yawa ranjer, si ponyar namni sajigla song myongam. This is the word of the Lord. Praise God. Um, I don't know, something that I appreciate about this community is that we understand that the Western world is not the central place of the church. Praise God for that. 
yes. <laughs> it just hit me too. I was like, yeah, that's a good thing. Um, my name is Vania. I serve, I uh, have the privilege of serving as the director of art and prayer. Um, things for prayer, things for art, creativity. That's me. Um, that's really it. So before we hop in, I have a question for you. Do you ever get from family members, you know, that very awkward conversation of, you look just like, fill in the blank. You look just like your mom. You look just like your uncle, or you get an attribute. You act just like little Ricky James III, you know? <laughs> For the better or the worse, somehow we get to image other people through our own upbringing. Um, for me, for better, I ended up looking like my dad, I guess, for better. Um, spitting image of him, so it's not helpful. We would have a game we would play called You're Not My Dad um, as a joke because I look just like him. Uh, we would do it in public, in the grocery store, across the aisle. I would yell at the man who we shared a face, You're not my dad! And he'd be like, I want a paternity test. To my mother's horror, we're laughing. Um, and then I say, you're not my dad, I know you're not. And he would say, I want all my money back. Um, because that's the type of dad I have, um, just like him. But then for worse, I realized that he looks just like his father. And my aunt caught on to this. One day, while at her house, sitting on the couch was my grandfather, she said, look, look at that bald 76-year-old man with no teeth. That's what you look like. <laughs> and that young, impressionable girl, needless to say, was encouraged. Yeah, it's very encouraged. Um, no. Uh, but unlike my aunt's words, the book of Hebrews is actually a book of encouragement. Um, so welcome to our summer series where we are walking through the book of Hebrews and we're going to do three things today. We're going to give an overview of the book. Number two, we're going to see how the heart of Christ and the heart of God are one in the same. And then we're going to see how his finished work is a trustworthy welcome. All right, a little bit of history and context on the book. We don't know who wrote the book, but we do know that the people who received the book must have been Jewish because most of the book walks through a lot of the history in the Torah, that's the Hebrew scriptures, as if to assume they would know everything that the writer's bringing up. For example, it's kind of like if we today were to dig up in some field some old letter and it was written in old English about milking practices, we would assume that this went to an English farmer. It would apply. Um, we don't have too many examples like that for us today. Maybe some things like speech patterns can give away where you're from. Um, we kind of play with that regional lingo that goes around, like our Northeasterners love wicked, not New York, the Northeast, New England. They just love it. Wicked is their word. Or in the South, fixin' to, and its cousin, finna. Uh, I remember learning that word coming down here. was very confused. I asked three times. I was like, you're doing what? I'm finna. I said, okay, okay. You have it. You got it. Southern or Philly people, John this, John that. And I learned people from the DMV, Mo. I don't know what Mo is. It's just Mo. What's up, Mo? How, Mo? What's up, Mo? And I was like, okay, cool. Hey, Mo. Um, but anyway, communication methods can tell you where you're from regionally, or um, it can even date you. So little things that people still hold on to, little sayings, maybe like, no one really says this, but far out, you know? You're like, oh, okay. That person, she laughed. And that person was last cool in the 1960s and 70s. Um, 
Or that one millennial who keeps slipping crunk into a sentence. It's giving I haven't been outside since 2005, yeah? It's giving, that's for you Gen Zers. See, it can tell you your date, your age, you. Little things help us understand the context of the letter. So other than just realizing that this audience is Jewish, we also recognize that this text is reasoned as if they would have been culturally Greek. We say reasoned because the Hebrew scriptures actually long narratives of God's story. But the Greeks actually rely on reason and use like the things we learned in school, logos, pathos, and ethos, right? And each section of that reasoning does one thing. It presents that Jesus is the greater reality. That's their whole point of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is the greater reality. To know one thing about the Greeks is to understand that they believed in the cosmos. The cosmos is to say that they believe the world and the universe had observable principles that um, were apart from our order, apart from our opinions, were actually ordered. And they called this ordering reality. And in the letter, its sections in each organization does two things. It presents an idea from the Old Testament, its purpose, and then its limitation. Next, it shows how Jesus ultimately completes each of its intention, that idea from the Old Testament. For example, angels in the Torah. It's the first section that opens up. The Torah, God's message, was given to Moses by angels on Mount Sinai. But then Jesus, being the Son of God, he's greater than the angels, and therefore his message is the fullest revelation of God's word to his people. Moses in the Promised Land. Moses leads the people out of slavery, out of bondage, and to the prom uh, ultimately to the desert where he builds the tabernacle in the wilderness. But unlike, G uh, unlike Moses, Jesus leads all of God's people, Jew and Gentile, out of slavery to sin and doesn't just build a tabernacle, but he's the builder of all creation. Priests, this whole entire Levitical priest structure. The priests represented Israel before God and would offer sacrifices to God that atoned, that is to cover their sins. Um, but they themselves also had to offer sacrifices for themselves because they were flawed. Jesus represents us before God, but since he's sinless and superior, he's the superior mediator between God and humanity. No lambs are actually needed for him. So the sacrifices in the covenant. And though he didn't need a lamb, that is the spilling of blood as a sacrifice to cleanse the people, he became the lamb for us. His sacrifice was the only one needed once, not annually on the Day of Atonement, once, and it would cover over the sin of the world. All of this shows that what was ordered in the world, what was observable, was only understood in part. And that Jesus completes these works, bringing clarity to all that God created, He's the fullest vision of reality. Jesus, in this letter, is represented as the ultimate reality. And the general purpose of this letter is to encourage the church. It's really just to help them see that he is who he is, to look at him, to encourage them, to recognize him, to believe in him, to know this most real world is held by the most real king so that they might endure. Because life is a journey. And if you're honest, this journey can be quite difficult. So after every section of showing Jesus is greater, it comes with an encouragement. See him, look at him so you can endure. So during the series, our brothers and sisters from this community are going to go through each book, um, each chapter in the book, and walk through all of those intricacies for you and give you new ideas and revelations from the Lord. But today, 
we're going to settle in the beauty of God that's revealed just in the first introduction of the letter that Kat read. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we need you. We put our hope in you. I pray that we would just know you are worth our everything. Father, I pray that our hearts would be drawn to the beauty of Christ. I pray that surrender, repentance, and joy would be the response to who you are. Father, right now, would your word just wash over us? Would it give us joy and joy in our salvation? Father, we ask that um, you be with us, you guide us. Anything that's not of you, would it fall away? Would our minds be brought into the room together? And would your, your purposes be the thing that we remember this morning? Amen. All right. So Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. When you turn to it, it'll be on the screen. It says, in the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. So there's so much to unpack and it was kind of hard to figure out where am I going to start because this could be 14 hours. Um, not doing that to you. We'll just be here for like a couple minutes. We're going to settle on verse three today. Verse three says the sun is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being. Depending on your translation, you might see the word imprint. Um, the word in Greek from the letter that's translated here is actually character, like verbatim, character. It's the mark stamped upon the instrument or wrought out on it. This idea comes from when a ruler or a king wanted to write a letter, they would seal it. And they would seal it with a marking of their very presence, as if to mark it valid, like this is from me. So it was usually engraved in wood, then cast in metal, and then it was pressed into paper as if to say, these words are from me. Receive them as if they're from me. See my face. Um, we don't really have this practice. I mean, unless someone like paid a lot of money for wedding invitations. Like we would see her like, oh, that's nice. Um, why would they do that? Maybe a very poor example would be like text signatures. People who are still in bondage to using text signatures. Um, Mom, I'm calling you out. Why do we still have text signatures? Um, you know, that older person in your community, they're like, love you, hope you're great, hashtag blessed and highly favored. And you're like, oh, okay. Um, you know you don't have to do that anymore because I can see your name on the phone. Technology does that now, you know? They come from a time of, like, caller ID. You're like, okay, I appreciate you, but let that go. But in this instance, the character of God or the bust of God is to see the face of God. And that example that we're getting from Hebrews is that it's Jesus himself. God made flesh. Jesus is the character of God. Unlike Moses and the priests, Jesus isn't just a representative of God, um, but God himself. 
So when Jesus comes down, he's not just giving us information about God, not facts about God, but he's literally showing us what the Father is like. Or as the Amplified Bible puts it, the Son is the exact representation and perfect imprint of his Father's essence. Essence is a pretty dope word. It means that all the qualities about Jesus are the same qualities about the Father. And I think that really gives us the opportunity to then maybe accept the modern way we understand character. You're like, oh, does that person have good character? Character by the Oxford Dictionary says, is the mental and moral qualities distinctive to an individual. So the writer is doing something very simple. They're saying is to see Jesus is to see God. This is way more than maybe family resemblance, like we kind of joked about in the beginning, or sharing of some barefaced attribute with your uncle third times removed. The father and the son share a triune oneness. And even with all this, all this um, maybe proof that they share the same heart, we have so many misconceptions about God, especially about his character, what he's like. Our culture asserts that the Father and the Son have different essences. That is to say, the Son is kind and benevolent, but the Father is wrathful and vengeful. And these could be further from the truth. They're united. The heart of Christ is the heart of God. In the book, um, Gentle and Lonely by Dane Ortland, which I would recommend to literally everybody, <laughs> especially if you come maybe from a propensity to have a works-based or performance-based identity, um, Dane in the entire book um, spends the time asking one question. What is the natural orientation of God's heart? What is he like in his truest essence? What is his heart bent to do automatically? Uh, he says, God is unswervingly dressed. But what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat eager to do? If you catch me off guard, what, you, what will leap out of me uh, before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. If you catch God off guard, what leaps most freely out of him is blessing, the impulse to do good, the desire to swallow us up in joy. His attributes seem to be set out of his love. That's his justice, his mercy, his kindness and love and judgment all set out of the essence of who he is. And that's love. He's not a God with love or a God that has love or is even loving, though that's true. He is love itself. So how do we, how do we know this? Well, thank God he showed us through the coming of Jesus. We have to look at the son. Jesus, what did he do? Jesus drew near to the outcast. He loved and moved towards those and what was considered repulsive in his world. One thing I like to look at is when Jesus would heal, he would do the kindness of touching that person. So for many who went years without having felt love because of so many purity and ceremonial laws where they were separate from each other, he would give them the dignity of touch as if to say you're worth it, me moving towards you. We see this when Jesus touches lepers. Though they were in exile and loneliness and destitution for years. They would have their own separate colonies outside of the city. But he would touch them. He would go towards them. 
he would restore the mentally and mentally tortured and demonically oppressed people and clothe them in their right mind. He moved towards them. When a woman's act of faith to dare touch the hem of his garment left her exposed and he could have shamed her, what did he do? He covered her and blessed her. He welcomed little children and would almost give the harshest, um, the harshest warning in the Bible that I would say is for those who would lead them astray. He protected them. He whispered little girls their life back, lifting them up by touching them out of their deathbeds. He let a woman who was out here in these streets not just touch him, but unveil her glory and use it to wash the dirt off his feet. He ran towards prodigals. That's what we see in Jesus. Goodness, kindness, restoration, love, and mercy. So then we have to ask the question, why don't we see this in God? God himself told us what he was like. Um, the scripture that the Hebrew people would have held on to the most, like, what is God like? What is, what is his essence like? Would have been Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to a thousand generations and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Those characteristics, compassion. Compassion is almost as remember you as a child that was carried in the womb. That's what the Hebrew word gives off. The language of compassion says the intimacy that a mother has to carrying a child in their womb is what God remembers about his people. He is moved from the innermost being of compassion. So every time you see Jesus saying he was moved with compassion, it was at the innermost part of him was moved towards somebody. God, his own attributes, merciful, that's entering brokenness with balm and salve, regardless of merit expressing much patience between our sin and rebellion and his actual judgment. Slow to anger, slow to respond. He almost, there's a part in the book Dane talks about, he's provoked to anger, but he never has to be provoked to love. That's his natural disposition. He has kindness towards us. He understands our fall and disordered nature, leaving much time between what we think we deserve on the first end. He gives grace and mercy. He overflows in love that is an overabundance, readily available position to pour out disproportionate to anything we think we could earn and committed to never leave or forsake us. This is the God he tells us he is, ready to forgive. And we can kind of maybe see that in the son but don't necessarily apply that to the Father. I think on some level, that's mainly because we just don't believe him. We just don't believe what he said. The Christian life, from one angle, is a long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over the many decades fall away. Being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. And that insistence has a demonstration. It's demonstrated in Jesus. So simply, church, we lean into what the writer is saying and we must see the sun. In the same ways that the rays of our physical sun, if we followed it, would lead us to the source. That's what the scripture is meaning by the sun is the radiance of God's glory. He's the proof. 
Jesus is the evidence of God's own goodness and brilliance. So what happens when a life, or what does it look like when a life doesn't gaze on the sun? It becomes insecure because it can't trust. Security in the Christian life is found in the finished work of Christ. And the finished work reveals the heart of the Father as trustworthy. And this is a huge problem when it comes to understanding the heart of God because you can either end up in two camps, either lacking in trust of God himself or lacking in trust of his finished work. You can feel very insecure. So ask yourself this moment, morning, take a second, take a moment. My question to you is, where do you find yourself not trusting God? And ask, is that connected to how I see and understand his heart? Or is it because I'm struggling to believe his finished work? And maybe the evidence of that is an insecure, internally mixed motivations to follow him. Take a pause for a second. If you're writing, write it down. If you're thinking about it, think about it. And it's okay, wherever that place might be. Trust is tricky. And a related type of trust that's maybe not as heavy is car trouble. Car trouble. Car trouble is a particular type of frustration. Yes, amen, yes. And boy, don't I know it, okay? My family growing up had a horrific record with cars. Tragic. Some may call it a curse of sorts, and I will, I'll own it. I think it's a curse. Um, we went through cycle after cycle of used car, just like boom, boom, boom. Partly because my father grew up in Boston and drives like a maniac and totaled 90% of them. Um, you're like, oh, yes, insurance was high as crap. Um, but my favorite was the one we endowed, the spaceship. It was a 1993 Toyota Privia, okay? I learned to drive this in 2012, okay? <laughs> it was made the same year I was born. So in some ways, <laughs> I felt it was made for me. My friends would name it the spaceship. Yeah, look at that. Look, it's beautiful, isn't it? It's just a large egg, very large egg. Um, and my friends named it the spaceship because we thought it looked like a spaceship, also because it had a terrible muffler sound. So like, it was just, all of it was together. All of it was together. This was high school, so I'd be like, oh my God, can we get a different car? Um, and this joker was so broke down. <laughs> it was so broke that every time you came to a stop, you had to put one foot on the brake while you had the other foot on the gas, like it was a stick shift, so it wouldn't cut off, okay? It was completely, completely operating illegally. You know, it was a threat to public safety, um, but we were driving it, okay? So my thought was that by the time I got my own car. I got my own car my senior year of high school, um, and it was a gift. Like, God literally put some, you know, it's a crazy story. God told someone to give me a car, and I was like, oh, my God, thank you. It was amazing. Um, but I thought the track record of terrible car situations would be broken. Um, 
shoot, it's still not broken. If you're honest, if you see my car in the parking lot, uh, three weeks ago, I ran over a, a tire in the highway, pulled my entire grill off, okay? The joint's busted. Have I got it fixed? No, okay? Because this is who I am. It's just who I am. Anyway, but uh, I get into my first car accident with that brand new car that I was breaking the cycle with, you know? Uh, I take a turn, a guy hits me, I'm 18, and it smashes up the whole side of the car, right? It wasn't dramatic um, at all. I came out fine, smashed the whole side of the car. But I quickly learned that the liability insurance I had does nothing, okay? It only covers the other person. It just makes you not liable for damages. You're like, okay, great. Should have bought the better insurance. But as a freshman in school who had no money, I was, you know, 18, had no money, um, I had to find a mechanic who would fix my car for the low. Okay, but not just the low, like the low low, like barely off the floor. I got $200, brother, what you gonna do? <laughs> I need some help. Um, I don't know if any of you have like trusted family mechanics, like that's really cool. I'm so happy for you. Like God bless you that you have a trusted family mechanic. I did not. What I got for the low low for some random mechanic was a two-tone door that didn't close all the way, okay? And so when it rained, rain would come into the car and fill it up. So I would just swim in my car as I drove to school. Point in case, okay? If the mechanic is shady, you're not going to trust the work they did. Meaning you're not gonna trust the mechanic. The work of the mechanic is a reflection of their character. Their character will reflect in their work. And the same is true with God. We know that Jesus is the character of God, the essence of his heart, but what is the work he's actually inviting us to trust? You know, what is the proof of his trustworthiness? The end of verse three says very clearly, after he provided purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of majesty in heaven. So we already kind of learned in the beginning that Jesus didn't need a lamb, but became the lamb. But for what purpose and what end? This purpose was known as cleansing, known as the atonement. The cleansing of sin happens in the middle of God's story. So I'm going to be very clear. Many people like to start here and make the cleansing the entire whole gospel message. It's truncated and short-sighted and has led large swaths of people to make a declaration they never really follow up with. They get stuck in their spirituality after this profession, not able to really know their value in God's eyes. Like, does he actually love me, know me, care about me? They end up not captivated by their savior rabbi, willing to follow him to the point that it caused death to something in their life. Nor know their mandate to participate in the renewal of this earth. But on the other hand, those who bypass this inflection point, the middle of the story, run the risk of not knowing the depths of God's love for us through a broken and bloody body that took the judgment for us in our place, settling for a cheap grace that tends to struggle to repent don't really know why and believe. So here we are. This cleansing is needed simply because of sin. Um, 
maybe you've heard this a thousand times. Maybe you come from a background where you're like, we've always started the atonement. I can tell you the entire gospel. It is this story right here, the cross, you know? All right. Maybe you haven't heard it. Here's just some clarity around what this cleansing was for. The cleansing's for sin. Sin is our great separator between us and God. God is holy without sin, and we are not. Our hearts are bent inward on itself, convinced they can self-rule for life. Regardless of what God says actually is good, it's self-serving, God-rejecting, ultimately to further our own brokenness. And we, those in this position, add to the brokenness in the world. Us separate from God, we are separate from what is actually good and right and true, what is best for us. And in this state, our sin, we guilty of actions and unable to have, are unable to have a father-child relationship with God. God instated with Israel, because he loved his people, wanted to move and commune with his people, but they have this problem of sin, he instated the sacrificial system. This sacrificial system was blood representing the loss of life being spilt. It was the cleanser. The spilling of blood represented forgiveness washing over his people. They were purified and cleansed, but at a cost, the loss of life for this animal. So when scripture says he, that is Jesus, provided purification of sins, it is talking about Jesus and his great love for us becoming like us, but utterly different. Dealing with sin once and for all by going to the cross. And on the cross, bearing our shame, dying, receiving the penalty of sin, though he didn't have any on our behalf. His blood, like the animal, shed, representing forgiveness, washing, cleansing of sinners, because his blood was more precious than any other animal. Hebrews 9 says, how much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Verse 3 says that after this act, he sat at the right hand of God, meaning there was never again a need to purify. The need to purify was over never to be repeated, never to be revoked, only sufficient, the only su sufficient sacrifice for eternity was what Jesus did. The atoning work of God through Christ is finished. Meaning sinners through faith in the work of Christ alone can be restored to a relationship with the Father as children. Now this is not to be confused with God's love before, beforehand or us um, while we were pursuing our sin and God intervening in our lives to show you that he was worth it while you were stumbling along the way. Some people like to leave that part out as if like God didn't love us. And, and when scripture says, because he loved us, he moved towards us. But these humans uh, now made in his image can get this free legal definition from guilty to guiltless and are endowed with a relationship status as child. Child never changes. Child is family because child shares blood. And now these children, that's us, called saints can live with full assurance of the forgiveness of their past, present, and future. Since when they repent, with full trust in the heart of the Father, because you can see that he went to great lengths, moved towards us in love for our restoration. This is the work he's inviting us to trust. This is the proof 
the work of of Christ is finished, the work reveals the heart of God. So whether you find yourself as now a saint who was a sinner or a sinner with knowing there's a beautiful, open, readily available invitation to become a saint today, we all have this propensity, whether we're in it or out it, struggling forward or we know super clear our identity in the Lord, that in this walk of life that is sometimes cruel, difficult, and frustrating, that there's still a different outcome or reality that we could have, but yet we're stuck with frustration and confusion through the difficulties we find in this journey of life. This propensity to just doubt, maybe you call it, or not to trust, can be like a a stone in the heart that keeps us from going to the God who actually offers the goodness we need. Life can do you dirty. So what do we do when we have this rock in our heart, this frustration space? this limitation because of life and our experiences, and yet God has told us he's merciful and kind and good and that he's done this great work. Well, I'm just going to keep the spirit of the letter. It's fairly simple. It says just look at the sun. Go back to the radiance. Follow the rays to the source. Some passages in scripture are very clear. They like push us to do something. Like, go do that thing. It's like, love your neighbor. Love them. (laughs) Something to do, you know? Care for the poor. Care for the poor. This scripture is really just telling us one thing, and that's to believe. And the answer is really no different if you're struggling with trusting his finished work or struggling and trusting the reality of his heart. The struggle to trust his finished work um, is sometimes called like the struggle with the assurance of faith. So what do we do? Like the letter says, we see him. See that he hasn't failed at one thing. So then why would he fail at covering you with the blood of his son? That work is finished. It's poured out in love. Receive. Believe. And rest. In that. Or for those of you, it may not look like you struggle with like his finished work, but functionally you do. You make a profession, you're like, I believe Jesus. He did enough for me to bring me to the Father. But yet you work. You work tirelessly not out of a response to his love, but to gain it. Hoping that this good act will go into this cosmic bank thing that'll outweigh the bad you've done. Your self-purification efforts will always be insufficient, but the blood was sufficient. You don't have to work. God is good enough just to receive. So look at the sun. And the word I speak over you is rest. Rest from your labors. And maybe you're in this room and you actually do trust his work, but you're struggling with his heart. 
that tie between the essence of the Son and the essence of God being one and the same, being able to see the attributes of Christ as God actually being kind, but you're struggling to believe it. My encouragement to you is the same as the letter, is to gaze. See the Father who sent the Son, the Son who was merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love, atoning for sin out of love, or maybe just take Jesus's words himself. In John 10, he says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is basically saying, if you believe the work, you got to believe me. The heart of the one who sent the one to do the work is one and the same. So believe him, saints. That's really the call. After all the information about them being the same and God being trustworthy is to rest, receive, and believe. There's no three-point action step this morning. Just one encouragement and call. And that's to gaze. Gaze on his beauty. Gaze on the God who is good. Then maybe, like the people who receive this letter, you might just end up being the ones looking at him. That we would be assured and trusting, living out of his greater reality and purpose, come what may. Because what may will come. <laughs> Whether you're ready or not, <laughs> it's coming. God, Jesus was fair enough and promised that for us. He's like, in this life, there will be trouble. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Let's pray. God, I thank you for... Um, your kindness and goodness.